0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, Along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm
1: going to be reading to you from Ephesians 4. I'm we'll be starting midway about verse 17. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. And yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. And let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy praise your name, your goodness, your mercy, which all lead us to repentance. So we ask that you help us not walk in the futility of our mind, but only to let your light and truth shine in our hearts. And we know that only you, through the power of the resurrection and the power of the Spirit within us, can help us put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. And only in you can we overcome sin and not live in bondage. Let our lives be characterized by kindness, by forgiveness, never forgetting that in Christ you have forgiven us. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.
2: Well, apparently Jeff has been reading ahead. He chose the perfect text to read out of the book of Ephesians this morning because this is, in the largest sense, a study of the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, and so much of what we're going to read this morning is paralleled in the book of Ephesians. If you remember the things we talked about last week, then much of what Jeff just read sounded very familiar to you. And stuff we're about to read is going to also have that same echo of what he just read out of Ephesians. So a perfect choice of texts to read. I am going to start reviewing at the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Colossians. But I want you to look at it Through one more lens, you may recall in the introduction to the book of Colossians that I told you that there were several different philosophical positions that Paul had to contend with that were prevalent there in Colossae. Not only was there a large and growing angel cult which is why he talked about people worshipping angels and looking into visions that they haven't really seen and talking about things that they don't really know. But also, part of what he was dealing with in Colossae was what's known as Gnosticism. And you've heard me mention Gnosticism several times. One of the characteristics of Gnostic thinking and philosophy was that everything spiritual was good and everything that was fleshly was inherently evil and bad. And so the Gnostics postulated that Christ, in order to be good, could not have been flesh. That while he was here on the planet, he was purely spiritual and he could not have shared in flesh and blood because flesh and blood is just evil. In fact, they were so convinced that flesh and blood was nothing but evil that one of the ways that they chose to deal with fleshliness was to say, well, if it's evil, just let it be evil. And so there were a couple of philosophies that we talked about when Paul was in Athens. We talked about the Stoics and the Epicureans. And the difference between the Stoics and the Epicureans is that the Stoics thought that the only way to deal with their evil flesh was to just deny it anything. That's why we still have the English word stoicism. People who don't let on their emotions or their thoughts will often say they're very stoic. What that means is you don't allow yourself to engage in any fleshly pursuit whatsoever. That was the way that they would deal with the evil of their flesh. They would try to just suppress it utterly and completely. On the other side of that spectrum was the thought that, well, the flesh is just so evil, then we ought to just eat, drink, and be merry because we can't stop it. We can't change it. It's evil, so let's just be evil. And that's where the word Epicurean comes from, the notion that We're just going to eat and indulge because, well, flesh is evil. The furthest extent of that kind of Epicurean thought was this Gnostic notion that flesh is just so evil that you can't do anything about it, so just let it be evil. Just continue in the evilness of flesh. Because after you die, your spirit, which is good, is then going to take you to ultimate goodness, but while you're here on the planet, just indulge in all the evil you can. Who cares? Flesh is bad. Well, that's why when Paul says in verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body, which the Gnostics would say, well, that's just evil, and so we have to deal with that evil by just letting it be evil. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to evil. That is very, very different. The Christian approach to the evilness of human flesh is the full redemptive capacity and ability of Christ, who is not only going to redeem your soul, but that he is going to redeem you, mind, body, and soul. That yes, your flesh is evil, yes, your flesh is sinful, but if you have been redeemed by Christ, then not only are you going to suppress the evil of your flesh, you are also going to do good in your flesh. Okay, now any Gnostic hearing that would immediately go, no wait, flesh can't be good. And yet Paul is about to advocate goodness in your fleshly behavior here on planet earth and not just giving in to your evil flesh so what paul has written here about consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity passion evil desire greed which amounts to idolatry he was just sticking his finger in the eye of the gnostics when he wrote that And saying to the Christians at Colossae, you don't have to give in to your evil flesh. You have been redeemed by a holy God who has implanted his holy spirit in you. And the holiness of the spirit of God is now a governor on your behavior, empowering you to do the things that you could not do before. Before you were saved, before you were redeemed, before the Holy Spirit took up habitation inside you, you had no choice but to walk according to the course of this world, according to your flesh, according to the prince of the power of the air. You had no other option. But now in Christ, you also have the ability and the directive to not only suppress the evil in your flesh, but to do good in your flesh. So whereas last week, we talked at some great length about all these evils that Paul says, don't do it. And in fact, you may recall that I summed up last week's entire message as, stop it. In a moment, we're going to read a verse in which Paul actually says, stop it. Because that is what God is not only calling you to, but is also empowering you to do in a way that you simply did not have in and of yourself, by yourself, before being born again, born from on high. So starting at verse 1, he lays out, if you have then been raised, if you've been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things that are above. Anno, as I told you last week. Just like Anothan, you are born Anothan, born again, born from above. Well, then concentrate on those things. Think about things from above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on things above and not on the things that are here on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Put all of that out of your life, out of your thinking, Get abusive speech and slander out of your mouth. And then verse 9, do not lie to each other. That is a simple Greek word translated here, do not. It's a single two-letter Greek word that is the equivalent of absolute negation. In other words, it is stop. And he says, stop lying. Do not lie to each other. Now, just like everything else that Paul has listed here, I assume that the reason he had to bring it up is because those are the natural inclinations of fleshly people. Fleshly people walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, they naturally gravitate to all those sinful, fleshly, self-aggrandizing things, including... Lying. Want proof? Turn on the news any day. Mm. We live in a culture right now that is saturated with lies. There are people who will lie to you to your face when the truth would work just as well. Mm. And lying has become such a customary activity here in our society that people do it without thinking. They don't think about the consequences of it. They just simply lie. And we've become so accustomed to it that when we hear a politician lie, we actually say things like, well, yeah, that's a politician. Because we assume that lying is part of being a politician. By definition, he's a politician. He lies. We don't know what to believe anymore in the regular news cycles because you will hear things and then you wait a couple days and you'll find out, oh, that wasn't true. I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, Jesse Smollett. The whole country was involved in that a year ago. That was a horrible hate crime Till we found out none of it was true. And yet the whole nation was so invested in it. Because lying is just part of the culture. You can lie and get attention. You can lie and become famous. You can lie and aggrandize yourself. Why do words like swindling exist? It's because there are swindlers in the world who will lie to you to get money out of you. And everybody in the room just thought of something. Oh, yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah. Because we're just living in a culture that is absolutely engulfed with lies, nonstop lying. Are we agreed to that? Because I could stand here for the rest of the morning and just give you examples of how much people just lie. Okay, so here's a perfect example of how Paul says knowing who you are knowing what Christ has done for you, knowing that you have the spirit of truth residing within you, then that ought to be a characteristic of the world that you no longer participate in, that you don't do that, especially within the church and among each other. Stop lying. Stop that very earthly very fleshly tendency to lie. Because after all, we say that we are born again through Jesus Christ who called himself, gave himself the proper name, the truth. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who he sent to us, he referred to as the spirit of truth. So if you say that you've been redeemed by the finished work of the man who was the truth and that you're inhabited by the very spirit of truth, then don't you think you ought to tell the truth? And so Paul here makes it a very direct command. Just stop it. The next time you hear some silly lie falling out of your face, stop it. Just quit it. And especially among each other, especially here among the congregation of believers, especially among those who have been saved with the like precious faith that you've been saved with, stop it. You get that? It is a very emphatic directive Be different. Don't be like the world. Do not lie to one another. And now he tells you why. And the motivation is, don't lie since you have laid aside the old self. That word old, the Greek word, just means antique, worn out, And then the typical word for being a human being, anthropos. So old man is a good translation of it. Lay aside the old man. In what Jeff just read for us out of the book of Ephesians, he described what the old man is like, that we used to walk after the course of this world after the prince of the power of the air, and we were children of wrath just like the others were. We were sinners just like the rest. But that, since we are born an oath and we are born again, that version of us now becomes what Paul calls the old man. And he says, lay that aside. Stop all the natural activities of your flesh and don't lie to each other. He then gives you the motivation because that old man, that old flesh, that natural tendency is dead. And you should reckon it dead by the fact that you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And the same way that he died, was buried, and resurrected, you died in baptism, you were buried under the water, you rose again to newness of life. And so consider your life new, regenerated, born from above, and don't act the way you used to act. And Paul knows exactly how you used to act, because you used to act just like everybody else. And so Paul says, you as Christians should be decidedly different because you wear that badge that says, I belong to Christ. So as a testimony to Christ, as a testimony to the value of Christ in your life, as a testimony to the fact that you are, in fact, born again, and you do have the spirit of truth residing within you, don't lie to each other since you have laid aside your old self with its, and now the translators, threw in the word evil, but it's just the word practices, because up until now, every time Paul has used the word "sark,"s translated flesh, every single time he's used it, it's always been in that negative context. So you know now that whenever he mentions the flesh, he's talking about flesh with all of its proclivities towards evil. And just in case you didn't get that, the translators decided to throw in the word evil one more time so that you really get it. But that word practice there is the word praxis. Have you ever heard the word orthopraxy? I've often said orthodoxy leads to proper orthopraxy. Because good teaching, good doctrine leads to good practice. Here's Paul saying that very thing. If you are dead to your old self, if you do have the spirit of truth within you, then that's going to be reflected in your practice, how you behave, how you act. So don't lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its practices. All the practices of the old self are laid aside, and you're now walking in newness of life, in newness of spirit, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, And therefore, you just simply would be different. I mean, if you've got the spirit of the maker of heaven and earth, if you have the spirit of the omnipotent sovereign God, if you have the spirit of the Savior, Redeemer Christ living in you, wouldn't it show? Wouldn't that make you different than what you used to be? Because I remember what some of you used to be. Uh Uh Uh-oh. I've known Tom a long time. We all, if we just think back, we can remember what we used to be like. And now, if indeed, you know Christ and he knows you, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then certainly the presence of Christ in your life would be reflected in how you are now, who you are now, how you behave, the practices that you indulge in now in your life. All of that would be a reflection of the fact that you belong to the sovereign of the universe. So what Paul is saying here is completely understandable. I know I've used a lot of words to say it, but I can narrow it down to two words. Stop it! Just stop being the way you used to be and then practice, walk in such a way that you are a reflection of Jesus Christ on the planet. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its practices And you have put on the new self. So here's Paul's next big contrast. There is an old self and there is a new self. The same way there is an old covenant which could only condemn you and a new covenant which actually saves you. There was an old self which was constantly rebellious against everything righteous and holy. And there is the new self. And the new self is to gravitate toward things that are righteous And So you're to think about those things that are above and not just the things that are here on the earth and put on that new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. Interesting, that Greek word, I mentioned gnosis to you a little while ago, gnostics. The word gnosis is the typical Greek word for just knowing, kind of knowing experientially. This is the word epinosis, which is translated here as true knowledge. What it means is more than just experiential knowledge, but an actual knowledge that comes from the wisdom that only God can give so that you have a more complete understanding. So once again, Paul is sticking his finger in the eye of the Gnostics and saying, you think that you know all that. You you don't know nothing. You don't have the epinosis because if you did, you'd be drawn to God in Christ. So put on the new self, which is being renewed to that epinosis, to that true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, in Romans 8, Paul's theology there is that God, before the foundation of the world, foreknew some people. And those people whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You get that language? Think about that for a moment, because Paul is saying that you're going to be changed during this lifetime. You're going to be conformed during this lifetime. And there is an original that you're being made into a copy of. And Christ is the original. And you're being formed in this lifetime to be a reflection of him. And so here Paul brings it up again in writing to the Colossians. So this is a very essential part of Pauline theology, that you're going to change in this lifetime. And by the way, may I add just parenthetically, I don't care how much profession of faith a person makes, if it's not accompanied by this kind of transformation, then it's just empty words. The truth is, everybody who's called to Christ, everybody who receives the Holy Spirit of truth, all of those people are going to be conformed into the image of the one who made them to begin with. You understand that? Put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which, by the way, the words a renewal added by the translators, what Paul really said is that it's according to the image of the one who created us in which, in that creation and in that regenerating work, There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. That's kind of saying the same thing twice, because the Jews were circumcised ever since the Abrahamic covenant, and they saw that as what made them distinct as a people group. And so all other Gentile groups, all other Goyim, all other non Jews were known by the nickname of the uncircumcised, they were the unclean. And so at this moment that Paul is writing this, Greek culture is the prominent culture there in the Middle East and through Southern Europe. During the time of Alexander the Great, Alexander spread the language, Koine Greek, in which the New Testament was actually written. Koine Greek is a very specific form of Greek. It's not classical Greek. And it's very specific so that when an order was given at one end of Alexander's kingdom, that same word usage and order of command would end up at the other side of the kingdom. And Koine Greek became the coin of the realm. Everybody spoke Greek and understood some amount of Greek culture. And so, As Paul is writing to that area of the world, there's really only two groups. There's the Jews, and there's the Greeks. There's everybody who's part of the Greco-Roman culture. And so here's the Jewish Messiah, and the promise of the Jewish Messiah by all the Jewish prophets and who have the oracles of God, and who have all the advantages of the law, and Moses, and all that history. That's the Jews. And then there's the Greeks, all the rest of the world. And the Jews have all the advantages. And so when the Jewish Messiah comes to the planet, you would assume that the Jewish Messiah came to redeem Jewish people. Certainly that was the assumption of the Jews, the earliest church was Jewish. And now Paul is saying something astounding. We're so used to it after 2,000 years that we don't see how astounding it is. Paul is saying that distinction that has always existed between Jew and Greek disappears in Christ. And people are being renewed to eternal life, both Jews. And Greeks. And God is not making the same distinction that we've always made. We've always said, we're the Jews. We've got the Messiah. We've got the oracles. We've got the prophets. We've got the law. We have this history with God. And then there's these Johnny-come-lately Greeks around who are being saved as well through the new covenant. Salvation by grace through faith without the works of the law and God is redeeming and renewing Greeks. So then, of course, the argument against Paul would be, yeah, but they have to be at least circumcised, right? That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. Yeah, but they at least have to keep some Jewish customs, right? So right after saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, Paul says neither circumcised or uncircumcised. In other words, no distinction. God can save whoever He wants, and Jesus is able to renew and birth again and regenerate anybody He wants. But then Paul goes even further because in Greco Roman society, there were class groups, and the people in the upper classes looked down on the lower classes. So you've got the Jews looking down on the Greeks, then you've got the upper classes of the Greeks looking down on the lower classes of the Greeks because the Greeks believed in knowledge and philosophy, and so they considered themselves the educated people. They were the people that were always in the pursuit of the perfect man. And so then Paul says, as he's breaking down these barriers to salvation, he says, nor barbarian. Okay, if you came across a person who didn't know Greek and didn't know Greek culture That person was considered a barbarian. That was a person who didn't have proper education. Sure, they might have some other culture. Sure, they might have some other language. But it wasn't Greek. And therefore, you look down on the barbarians. But then Paul goes even further. Not only barbarians, but Scythians. Scythians were savages. Scythians were uneducated in much of anything. They were interested in warfare and savagery. Okay, everybody gets to look down on them. Even the barbarians get to look down on the Scythians. And here is Paul saying, there's no category you can think of or that you can name. There is no division of class or race God can save people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. And that was shocking to so many elements of the audience that he's writing to. It is a renewal, a regeneration in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and then all of Greco-Roman culture was divided into slaves and freemen. This is why when Paul pled his case all the way to Caesar, he had to tell the centurions that were guarding him, that had struck him, he had to tell them, I'm a born free man. And then they were in fear because they had struck a Roman citizen, a free man. And the one who was guarding him said, I purchased my freedom with a great price. And Paul said, I'm a born free man. Okay, so that's one of the divisions within the culture. There were free men and there were slaves. Slaves were sometimes conquered people, but most often they were indentured servants. They were people who would go to work because they had run out of money, or they had gotten themselves so in debt, or they had no food, and so they would become servant to somebody else. But then those who were the free men, those who were the masters, those who did have the ability to look down on the slaves, would naturally think of the slaves as a lower class of people yet again. Roman culture was a very two-tiered system. You had the free men and you had the slaves. And there was no middle class. There was nothing in the middle there. And so Paul takes those two classes and says, either one of those, slaves or free men, God can save them both. It's a renewal, a regeneration in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. You've probably heard that phrase most of your church life, Christ is the all and in all. First time I heard it, my first question was, what does that mean? It's a nice sounding phrase, it's poetic, all and in all, but in context... What Paul is clearly saying is Christ is not only the completion. He has already said a couple times, we are complete in Christ. So he is all we need. He is the everything in salvation. Christ is all. But is also taking up habitation and renewing all kinds of people. And he's just listed the all kinds of people. When you see the word all, pas, in the Greek, it can mean all or every collectively. But oftentimes, it means all types, all kinds. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Paul writes that the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you think of the word all as just meaning all, and that's all, all means... If that's the way you think of it, then Paul just said that money is the inspiration behind absolutely every evil there was. Except that Adam and Eve didn't know what money was and they committed the first sin. So was that the inspiration for their sin? No. Well, then it can't be old, can it? In fact, can you think of a sin that is not directly motivated by money? Well, yeah, yeah, you can. And so... When you see the word pos, you look to see whether he's talking about types and kinds or whether he's saying all, every, inclusively. In this sentence, Paul has just laid out types and kinds. Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. Those are all kinds of men. And so when he says he's in all, That is in all kinds, because he's just told you kinds. Christ is all. He is the completion. He is the totality of what you need for salvation, and he is in all kinds of men, which is exactly what Paul has been saying in the whole sentence, that there is no barrier to keep Christ from saving any type of man he chose to save. Therefore, he is all and in all. Got it? it. Okay, so now verse 12. We talk a lot here at GCA, and in fact, I've heard Micah talk about it. I've heard Tom talk about it. I've heard Jeff talk about it. Are you familiar with the terminology of the indicative and the imperative? Mm -hmm. All it means is indicative is what you are. It indicates So when you find a part of speech that you say is an indicative, it's indicating something. An imperative is what you do. It's telling you to do something. And so much of man-made religion and too much of what is called Christianity in the modern context gets the indicative and the imperative backward. And they say... If you want to be this, the indicative, you got to do this, the imperative. So you got to do the stuff, and if you do the stuff well enough, then you can be this. You want to get your 70 virgins when you die? Okay, you got to do this. You got to kill some infidels. See how that works? Do you want to get to nirvana? Do you want to reach the that that is behind all that? Well, then you got to do the proper meditation to get to the nirvana. That's the way all man-made religion works. It starts with imperatives in order to get you to the indicative. Paul never does that. Not once, not anywhere. Paul always starts with the indicative which is who you are, and then he puts the imperative behind it. Since that's who you are, be like this. Got it? it. Okay, verse 12 is a perfect example of Paul's use of the indicative and the imperative. That's why I went through that definition so that you can see it for yourself. He's going to give you some imperatives. But prior to doing that, he tells you, based on who you are, do these things. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Wow, there's a great description. Because you are in Christ, because he has completed you, because by his single sacrifice, he has perfected you forever And because God chose you before the foundation of the world and since you have been chosen by God and chosen to be holy and beloved, holy means hagios, it means to be set apart for God's exclusive use. It's the same word that is translated saints sometimes. It's the same word that lies at the root of sanctification. Because the Latin word sanctus means holy. Hagiasmas, hagias, any of those words have to do with God setting people apart from the whole rest of humanity for his use. For his calling, for his purposes. So since you are holy and eternally beloved by God. The same God who would say in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. Okay, that kind of love. Okay, that's who you are. Paul just described you as those who have been chosen by God, and you're holy, set apart for God's use, and you are eternally beloved by God. And since that is true of you, here comes the imperative. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul did not say, if you will put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, then you can be the chosen of God. And then you can be holy. And then you can be beloved. If you want the love of God, make sure that you put on that heart of compassion. It's not what Paul said. That's how people preach it, but it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, because you are already this, now do this. Put on a heart of compassion. That is a heart of empathy. We talked about Paul's previous use of the word passion. Was in a negative sense because he was talking about the passions of the flesh that can overtake you with lust. But calm passion means to have the same passion with other people and to do it empathetically, to bear with the difficulties that other people are bearing under. So be compassionate to one another. Kindness just means to be. Kind to one another. Look at one another as brethren. They're family with you. And so treat them accordingly. Treat them with the kind of patience and the kind of endurance that you would treat beloved family with. Humility. Do I really have to bring it up again? Oh, I'm going to. You probably can't stop me. I've got the microphone. I'm going to do it. What is the most often cited sin? Pride. There it is. You know it instantly. The opposite of human pride is to be humble. This is the same Paul who wrote in the book of Philippians that every man is not to look on his own things, but look on the things of others. And reckon every other man as better than yourself. That's a tough one. Because we all start with me. I'm the important one. And I'll be nice to you, but only if you'll recognize how nice I was being to you, because it's really all about me. It's hard for human beings to reach the point of genuine humility. But Paul says, look, it was the old man that was egocentric. It was the old man that was prideful. And you have died with Christ. Therefore, put off that old man. Put off that old pride. Put off that old way of being. And instead, deal with each other through genuine humility. Thinking about other people ahead of yourself. Gentleness. That's the opposite of the kind of brusqueness and the kind of self-advancement that we used to be like. Human fleshliness is all about meanness and harshness. And he says, don't be like that. Instead, be gentle. And patience. That's a tough one for most people. You know, the people who go to God and pray, dear God, give me patience now. (laughs) Good, I'm glad you got that. Be patient, and then he's going to tell us, he's going to extrapolate on that patience thing a little bit more. He says, bearing with one another. That is essentially just putting up with one another, not being quick to judge one another, not being angry with each other, but bearing with the fact that we're all different, and we all have our foibles, and we all have our weaknesses. And so rather than judge each other on the basis of your perception of their weakness... Instead, be patient with them, be kind to them, be gentle to them, be humble, put them ahead of yourself, and bear with each other, and forgive each other. Whoever has some complaint against another, you know, that's usually why people get angry. You know what you did to me. You did that thing to me, and now I'm going to get you. So Paul says that if you've got anything against somebody else, forgive them. And then the motivation for why you should be forgiving goes right back to the indicative. It goes right back to, who are you? Be like that. Be forgiving. If you have a complaint against anyone else, forgive them. Put up with them. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you forgive. That becomes your inspiration. You're the holy, you're the beloved, you are the ones that God chose, and you are more so than all of that, you you are the forgiven. You are the ones who had this whole sin debt that you could not pay, and then Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin debt and then took the law that would condemn you and took that out of the way and then promises you his own righteousness. And his righteousness is imputed to you and he forgave you all your sin. Cast as far behind God's back that it's cast into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west is how far God has separated you and your sin. And you can't forgive Shane? I had to pick somebody obvious. We, forgive you. <laughs> we forget, And you forgive me for that. Okay, good. I feel good about that. We ought to be the first people, Christian people, church people. We ought to be the first people to be quick to forgive. Not because we're so good or so clever. Not because the person who did whatever they did, well, I'll just learn to live with it. We do it because we recognize how forgiven we are. We've been exceedingly forgiven. And then you can't be forgiving? Think about everything that God forgave you for. Starting with, an eternal rebellion against an eternally holy God. He forgave you for that. And you can't forgive somebody who slights you, especially if it's somebody that Christ has also forgiven. So within the church, again, be kind to each other, be patient with each other, be long-suffering with each other, bear up with one another, and forgive each other, whichever of you might have a complaint against any one of the rest of you. Because just as the Lord forgave you, you should also be forgiving. And beyond all these things, put on agape. That is sacrificial love. That is not just I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of love. That is not I'll love you as long as you love me. If you ever quit loving me, I'll stop loving you. That's not what the word agape means. Whenever you read about the love of God in the New Testament, it's always agape. It's that very high form of love that is demonstrated by sacrifice, which is why we read that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, the way that God demonstrated His love to us is that He sacrificed for us. Even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were busy being rebellious, even though we were busy hating God, He loved us not because of what He was getting back from us. What He was getting was hatred and rebellion. But He knew what we needed most. And that, I think, is the best definition of the word agape. It is doing for the one who is loved what is in the best interest of the one being loved, whether the one being loved recognizes it or knows it or appreciates it or responds to it. It's loving people sacrificially for the good of the person you're loving. And so Paul says, above all those other things, above having a heart of compassion, above being kind to each other or living in this humility, beyond practicing gentleness and being patient with each other and bearing up with one another and forgiving each other, beyond all that put-on sacrificial love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's a very practical statement, by the way. It's a nice turn of a phrase, but if you think about it, if you're in a room, if you're part of a group of people who all have your best interest at heart, that's unifying. Because then you have everybody else's best interest at heart. And then everybody else has Tom's best interest at heart. And then we collectively all have April's best interest at heart. And as a consequence, there is this unity beyond the unity of the spirit that we've all received, the Holy Spirit of God, that one spirit who we all share in. And then there is that one faith and that one doctrine that we all believe in. But then there is that one practice that we all walk in. And it is a bond of unity that is the result of sacrificially loving one another. That is Paul's definition of how the church ought to be. Because remember, he's writing to the church at Colossae. And he's instructing them how to be. And saying, put away the way you used to be. And instead, put on this new man, this born-again man, this regenerated man. And then walk like it. Let this be your practice. That you do have a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And that you do forgive each other just the way that the Lord forgave you. You then forgive each other and on top of all of that, you have sacrificial love for one another where you're willing to do what is in the best interest of the rest of us simply because it's what's in the best interest of the rest of us. Whether you get anything out of it or not, it's just simply the right thing to do and that becomes the bond of unity the next two words in the English translation I'm reading from the NASB the next two words are and let those words are not in the Greek and when we read and let it sounds like we're allowing something to happen like it's up to us to make the decision here But no, this is still part of Paul's directives for what the church ought to be like. The peace of Christ will rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. There's that unity thing again one body, one faith, one baptism. We all share one spirit, there is one truth. We all follow after the one Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and we are the one body. Therefore, there should not be warfare or againstness within the body. We know that physiologically. If you've got some organ in your body that decides to rebel, it'll make every other organ in your body pretty uncomfortable. You're not truly healthy unless everything in your body is working in a healthy way. And we know what it's like to have parts of our body rebel against us. And that happens in the church. I've been in the church my whole life. Sure, I took a break in my 20s, sure. But I I grew up in the church. And I have seen churches split. I have seen churches debate and argue. I have seen churches divide and always over the most insignificant things. Very seldom is it a large doctrinal thing. Why did they split? Because they found something to argue about. They found something to be against each other about. Okay, well, here we're supposed to have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. The opposite of the word Irene, peace, is the word againstness. And whenever there is a prevalence of againstness, there is a lack of peace. And that's why there are divisions and splits and schisms within the church. And so the only way to solve that kind of potential againstness that can happen within a church body is to have the actual rulership of peaceful unity within Christ, letting that be the chief goal of the whole church body. Unity because of Christ. Look, I'll I'll try to simplify it. A couple of years ago, at the conference in Texas, Keelan Atkinson, I will happily call his name. I've known Keelan for years and years. Keelan Atkinson taught on Christianity and race. And he did just an excellent job of it. Because he said, Christ first. Christ is the primary thing. Everything else is under Christ. Christ. And so, whatever differences you have, even racial differences, if you get that equation wrong and put race above Christ, you're going to end up with division in the church. But as long as you see race as subservient to Christ, you're going to continue to have unity in the church, regardless of the racial characteristics that make up that church. Isn't that simple to understand? And it is a brilliant reality that far too often gets forgotten within the church. Anything, any difference, anything you can think of, anything you can name that you put ahead of Christ, well, that's going to create schism within the church. As long as Christ is primary in the church and everything else is subservient to Christ, then there's nothing you can name that can destroy the unity that comes through the peace, the knowledge of the one Christ who the whole body shares in. Am I alone up here? Okay, good. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against another, just as the Lord forgave you, so you should also forgive And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I guess like last week, I said... If you leave here with nothing else, remember that I said, stop it! (laughs) This week, if you leave remembering anything, be thankful. Because you're here. You, You got up out of your bed this morning, got yourself dressed, got in your car, and came to where the other people are that are inhabited by the same spirit. That you're inhabited by. Be grateful. You had food today, you have clothes on your back, you know your own name. Be thankful. We, as a church, GCA, wherever you find a church that concentrates on the teaching and the doctrine of the Bible and the unity of the Spirit of God, be thankful. Because you're among people who care about your best interest. That's really good. Be thankful. In other words, don't take it for granted. Because the unity that we have, the love that we have amongst each other is a rare thing in this world. And this world is doing everything it can to divide people. Rich against poor. Male against female black against white the 1% against the 99% the trump voters against the non- you know everything you hear is about division and about singling you out so that we can all collectively blame you oh now the new one is the vaccinated and the unvaccinated oh yeah dividing people that's what the world is all about dividing and conquering people Unity is a hard thing to find. If you found it, either here at GCA or in any church anywhere, be thankful. This is where you get to come and get away from the rest of the world and be among the people who value Christ and his instruction more than they value the flesh of the old man. So be thankful. And then recognize who you are in Christ and walk like it. Practice it. You got it? it. So whereas last week was bad news, bad news, bad news, I hope this week was good news, good news, good news. Next week, we'll talk about submission to one another. Because that's what Paul is going to continue to talk about. It's more than just humility It's voluntarily placing yourself in submission the way that God designed his church to work. And I think I'm done.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.